Welcome to episode 38 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. The companion podcast to our Read the Bible in a Year plan. In case you didn't know. Where we discuss... 38 episodes in. (laughs) Maybe someone is turning to it for the first time. That'd be great. Wouldn't that be great? I'm so glad. You knew I actually just started listening. (laughs) We're doing this for you, new listener. I figured, you know, I don't really know what the Bible says. Maybe Maybe I should listen to this podcast. Do any of us know what the Bible says? Really? You know, if we were ever to do this again, which I'm not... I'm not saying we should, but it'd be kind of fun to like get somebody who never has read any of the Bible before. That'd be a big (laughs) ask to then read it. It would be a big ask, yeah. Maybe if we paid them, Mm -hmm. be like, "Hello, random neighbor, would you like to earn five to seven dollars a week? (laughs) (laughs) We'll pay you a dollar an hour for reading. We could start trying, you know." leaving voicemails and phones across town being uh-huh. like we're trying to reach you regarding your bible's <laughs> extended warranty yeah um maybe maybe being a little more discerning than that would be good because well you never know maybe we need that we need a person who just starts coming to church for the first time in that like 18 to 25 year age range that's encountering scripture for there the first aren't time. that many of those that was me but that's oh, been a little well, while ago but that was 35 years ago not quite that long but thank you <laughs> So today, it's a very special episode of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, it because is. we're finally done with the Old Testament this <laughs> week. <laughs> I have appreciated, and, and I have written down, if you'll permit it, <laughs> at, the, at the end for us, if there's any general Old Testament thoughts, uh-huh. but just I have to the same kind idea. of pre, pre, uh, to pre that, I, to pre that. <laughs> I just want to say it's been interesting, you know how sometimes they like, you know, we'll we'll scale like human history to like a twelve-hour clock, or like kind of con- you know condense it so you can kind of see. So it's just interesting thinking. Obviously, you can pick up a physical Bible and you know that so much more of it is Old Testament than New Testament. But just to sort of have experienced it throughout the year, you know, of like from January to September is the Old Testament, and then it's really just the you know the last three months that are the New Testament. Anyway, it was just a, a different way of experiencing the scale, you know, of it. <laughs> so I think we're starting by talking about the last few chapters of Ezra today. Mm-hmm. And so where did the readings for this week pick up with Ezra? Oh, I had. I believe dis- chapter nine. I had wanted. Okay. I, I think. I had wanted to discuss them last week, so I just didn't make a mark. I just oh. counted on having read them last week. Yeah, I believe we picked up so it's the last few chapters of the book of ezra nine nine and ten basically okay so you had said a while ago that you secretly suspect ezra is a villain well or you suspect he's secretly a villain (laughs) yeah i was gonna say i don't secretly suspect (laughs) i've been pretty public about it um you know well and these chapters i think kind of aren't the the sole reason for that but i think that that again we you know, and Ezra in general is a book that's generally ignored and, and we just, it's not super exciting. And I mean, it is if you have eyes to see, but it's not one of the more kind of flashy stories. And as Nehemiah gets more mm-hmm. uh, airtime, I think. Uh, of course, and we said this a few times, but just that it's, it, we should remember that originally Ezra and Nehemiah were a single book. So, I mean, they're split up in our English Bibles, I assume, because they're split up that way in the Greek ancient greek septuagint i don't actually know i'm not sure but i mean they're they're a single work 
yeah, I think these last two chapters of Ezra are just hard to understand, I think, what is happening. Because yeah. they, you know, Ezra doesn't actually get there until like chapter six, I think, is when it talks about him actually coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then one of the things he finds out, which you'd think it would just be evident, but again, that must be a a social cultural wrinkle that we don't have in our minds that, I mean, these are one of these chapters that I would love to know more about. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of deepen my, my understanding because there's a lot of questions associated with this, but anyway, it's reported to Ezra maybe right after he gets there, or perhaps he's just isolated from a lot of the day to day lives of the people that it seems like many of them period, but then also especially like the Levites and the priestly families uh, that these the men are marrying quote unquote foreign women, uh, and that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. And so he makes them all get divorced. Well, they actually suggest it. <laughs> well, that's true. Somebody else suggests it. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I noticed on this read through of like, oh, it wasn't actually originally Ezra's idea. Yeah. That's interesting. So I think one of the the important pieces for me, at least the way that I have understood this, is that when they say foreign wives. The way that a person became an Israelite wasn't being born into being an Israelite only. Like, people from other nations could join the covenant, right. worship Yahweh, and then they became Israelites, right? right? They were grafted in. And so for these to be foreign wives, I think that what we're being told is that they are not worshiping Yahweh or not right. worshiping Yahweh solely. So they're actually marriages that are not unified in in religion. So it's, it's bringing idolatry... And the, potent, the strong temptation to apostasy into the home, which is literally what led to the exile, right? Those two things. And so that, because it really is, at the first reading, as I was going through it, it hit me hard and it felt just wrong. You know, get rid of these wives. Um, that's not good for the, the women. And that's, I mean, we, we were reading Malachi where he hates divorce. But if this is about the... Um, marrying women who are worshiping foreign gods and bringing the worship of those gods into the homes, then it is an, uh, a proof or evidence of a lack of, of faithfulness on God's people. And a purifying has to happen. And these, they, they're, re-be- they're rebeginning. And so that doesn't mean it's not harsh and that doesn't mean it's not hard. I'm not saying this makes it easy to, to take, but it helps me to understand how it could be a righteous thing rather than an evil thing. Because at first glance, it seems like an evil thing. Well, and an evil may be too strong of a word. Mm, a whole bunch of people divorcing their wives because of their race would be evil. Well, but it's not... I mean, you just said it wasn't necessarily what we would think of as racially right. motivated. And, and that's what I mean. That's why motivated. it's not evil. <laughs> like, at first glance, it does appear that way. I, but when you I mean, I think it, in the ancient world, those things are all mixed together in a way that they're not anymore. Right. You know, race and religion and all of that. I agree. And so, yeah, I think it, it's it's just a very difficult thing. I... Because there's no, there's, there's, there is no other part of the Old Testament that has inclined us to think that divorce is good. And I mean, you've already referenced this. It was in my notes. I mean, Malachi, who would have been kind of a contemporary of all of this, saying Yahweh hates divorce. Like, I don't know. That seems, I mean, it's also not clear. And, and when we get into Malachi, maybe this, we can talk a bit more about it there. But it's unclear to me if like, were these 
these men's only wives or is wife the right word for what these women were or i mean so i like i said i feel like a lot more study you know again i don't i think this is one of those parts of the old testament that we will never sit comfortably with (laughs) just because we are so far removed in time and culture and covenant obligation um but i i suspect that there are some some translation things that there are some historical detail just in terms of what was happening in the Jude the Judean province at this time in the Persian period that would I think fill in some of these holes and be like okay you know I get it a, li- a bit more and I'm not denying anything you said about the religious corruption and I mean I think that is a part of it and that's why there's an emphasis on the Levites especially in doing this but oh, oh well I, I mean connected with all of this so in in chapter 10 verse eight um starting i guess in verse seven they make this proclamation and say uh do then a proclamation was made throughout Judah and jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at jerusalem so it's interesting to me like all the returned exiles so like these were the people who were in babylon so did they marry people in babylon or did they get back to judah like it's just unclear to me like who are these people mm-hmm. like are the people left behind or are they the people who returned well, because the so the exile itself happened in stages. It right. looks like the return, and the return happened in stages yes. as well. Yeah, and, and Ezra the, was not amongst the first, right. the first wave. But it just seems like okay, so these families didn't intermarry in Babylon, but then they would come back to Judah and do that. I mean, and I'm not again. I'm not, but it's just like trying to wrap my, you know, just trying to understand sure. what well, because is I happening. Imagine these <laughs> these women worshipped Yahweh. They just also yeah. worshipped other gods. Mm. And that's the other thing is that the divorce, and we've seen this a lot of the time, a proclamation is made and it doesn't mean that it's it's fulfilled exactly because right. people can react to it. And so these women stop being foreign wives if they kick out the idols from their right. home. And so if they make a change, then it, it wouldn't apply to them. That's true. That's a good point. Well, anyway, so this proclamation says to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days... By order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. And that Ooh. struck me as being unprecedented. And I, I'm i wondering if you could help me understand, like, what legal basis did they think they had to do that? Because as far as I know, there is no provision in the Torah. I mean, there's a precedent. It's Moses calling for all those who follow Yahweh to come to me. Sure, but that's before they're in the land. What I'm that's fair, but what I'm saying is when Moses did that, right, it was it was all those who follow Yahweh come to me. That's how we get the Levites, right? Because they're right. the ones who, who respond faithfully. And we're talking about in the aftermath yes, in the, the golden, golden calf, calf right? uh, episode. And so all these these people come and then those who don't are showing themselves to be in violation of the covenant. And at that time, the whole people are together. They have not just gone. I mean, they've they've escaped a a awful time of slavery, but the nation is big and full of promise. Right? This is is a different time. Um, they cannot afford to have impurities in the in the camp because I mean, we've seen before that they spread. I mean, we've seen that marrying women who worship other gods is the way over and over again that idolatry and apostasy come to God's people. And so what I think this is, is a declaration of you come or you're declaring yourself not part of the, the people. 
And it's it says something that there were so few of them that they could be expected they to do this in three, in three days. days. Yeah. And so I, I think that this is a desperate um, move to to prevent another disaster. It re again it the first time I read through this um, a week ago or so it hit me hard and I I read some commentary on it and then I read through it again and that helped me a little bit um, to see that they could not afford another slow fall into into apostasy. And no, I get that. It just I I kind of read it as an overreach. Like Yahweh is ulti- is ultimately the landlord, and it's so it's his prerogative to expel people from the land, not the central authority. That's true. Well, and I guess it's a question of is Ezra cons- is he does he have prophetic authority? No, because if he does, if Yahweh's speaking through him, then this is from Yahweh. But if he's not, then it's not. And I don't actually know the answer to that. I mean, when Ezra when, probably thought he had well, that authority. And when Ezra is introduced, I mean, it's made very clear that he is well steeped in the law. So it's like, it's not that, you know, he knew what he was doing. I just, again, I'm just not sure. <laughs> I mean, I think that we are not, we want to be careful in reading the Bible suspiciously. <laughs> like, I think we should, we should restrain that impulse because... But we know, and, and we talked about this with Esther, you know, or, or other narratives where the Bible often doesn't just come out and tell us, hey, this person shouldn't have done this. Judges, for instance, you know, Jephthah and whatever else. It's like it's up to the reader and the community to reflect on it and go, hmm, that was not the best that it could have been. Maybe here's something else that could have happened. And so, and this is just me as a person, legitimately as a student of the Bible asking, like, is that how we're supposed to be looking at Ezra? You know, not that, not as a villain, but just as a, you know, okay, so the exiles come back and they, I think, rightly diagnose why the exile had occurred, but then they overreact into, into unrighteousness, into hurting people, you know, and whatever else. Uh, and so they then, they betray the covenant in the opposite direction of like the hyper- legalism the hyper righteousness mm-hmm. and we touched on this when we first got into Ezra a few weeks ago of like I think that part of the value of, of Ezra and Nehemiah there's value inherent just in the stories themselves but I think that for Christian readers especially like we are watching them set the foundation for that will then kind of be a pot boiling over I just mix metaphors but they're 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 I guess they're lighting the burner underneath the boiling pot that will be the Judea of Jesus's day you know, and just the the tensions and the yeah. the social order that we see kind of reaching its bad fulfillment. You're right, you know, and that's at, beginning at the time of here. Jesus. That's fair. And they're setting that up now. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that what they again, I don't know. I mean, I'm I I want to know more. You know, but just like I'm not saying that when Ezra did it, that was bad. But rather, you know, we have the privilege of being able to look across the entire span of these things and go, yeah, hmm. It is so difficult to make judgments within the within history because we have no idea what's going to happen five hundred years from now, you know, and just how our decisions are warped and twisted by you know our own context, our, our own, own context, but then also just the changing context of everybody else's sin and corruption and and whatever. It's also where this is a bit of a gear shift. It's I think it's also worth just briefly discussing the fact that these passages from Ezra and their their attendant passages in the Torah were for a long time used as justifications against uh, mixed race marriages. Yes, they were, especially in American Christianity. 
And uh, that is not what they're talking. It's just about. not what that's not what it's about. <laughs> no. We're in a different covenant in a different context. Yeah. No, Ezra is is a this the end of Ezra got real real spicy real fast. Um, and then we get kind of a, a letdown. Not letdown as in it's bad. Um, it kind of comes down though at the beginning of Nehemiah. And then picks up again. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting just as it ends with kind of an anti-genealogy. <laughs> yes. You know, like here are all the ones that were guilty. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And, and that's then, the only time I can think of that in here. Well, and it's it's interesting too of like, I mean, I suppose it's because they pledge themselves to put away their wives and their guilt offerings. And so it's almost like this public notice, you know, of like, so here's all the ones who said they're going to do it. And will they? Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else from Ezra? So Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes place about 13 years after Ezra returns. Nehemiah returns. And he's been the cupbearer to the emperor. And he gets... Very the, important position. It is a very yeah. important position. And he, he and he apparently has a good relationship with the emperor because mm-hmm. his sadness troubles mm-hmm. the emperor. And it's because he's heard reports that things are not progressing as they need to progress. And so he asks for permission to leave for a time, and the emperor doesn't want to let him go forever, but, you know, lets him go for a time home to act with the emperor's authority. I mean, he becomes governor when he mm-hmm. when he's there um, and, and get things back on track. And it's in Nehemiah that we get a lot more about the opposition. So we mm-hmm. got some of that at the beginning of Ezra. We see a lot more of it in Nehemiah. And we see Nehemiah very effectively um, govern in a way that responds to these external threats, I think that still speaks to us today. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think Nehemiah is often, like I said earlier, he gets more preaching, much more preaching time than Ezra. Uh, I mean, obviously still far less than, you know, a lot of the pre pre exile stuff, but yeah, he's often pulled from, I feel like for like leadership based things and, and, uh, a favorite of like, let's build the church sort of sermon series and which is all good. I mean, I think that's not, those are not bad ways to, Mm -hmm. to preach out of the book. Um, Only half of Nehemiah actually concerns the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. They finish in chapter six and then, and then it shifts focus to still rebuilding. I mean, the theme for both of these, Ezra and Nehemiah is the re the rebuilding, putting back, putting Judah back together again Mm -hmm. after the exile. Of course, then that leads me to my next question. If the wall was such a big deal, then why hasn't it been rebuilt yet? Why did Nehemiah have to go and, and instigate the completion of the of the work? So when Ezra came, he brought with him supplies and, and promise of whatever they needed from the emperor. It does seem like what Ezra lacked was charismatic leadership. Hmm. And so he's a teacher of the law. And, but the people had, and we see this in Haggai. I mean, they had built their homes. They, you know, regular life had resumed inside of these ruins of Jerusalem. And the, the people were just not motivated to rebuild the walls. They needed a, a figure to come and lead them. And Zerubbabel was a governor and he's not spoken of badly, but he just was apparently not able to galvanize the people to complete the project. Or he may have died. I don't know if we're told when he dies. No, he just kind of... But he's not there. He's made much of and then nothing happens. Yes. And so it could be that the loss of their leader just yeah. just took the wind out of their sails. Um, but it, I mean, Zerubbabel imagine, also means he who was born in Babylon. So I don't know if uh, what his actual name was yeah. or if there's a reason why he's labeled that 
has any significance. But anyway. But um, I I also think that it's possible. Let me see here. Sorry, I derailed you. You're good. And I, I lost the thought, but it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> we were just talking about the governor and lack of, you and know, leadership yeah. that Nehemiah had. Oh, to... yeah. Well, thinking about like, so when the tornado struck in Washington in 2013, um, it was amazing to see people come out and help, right? Mm-hmm. Right away for, for like two weeks. And then that labor became hard to find, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was still a pretty big need for help in Washington. But I mean, groups had a harder and harder time find. And the reason is because we were still doing life. Mm-hmm. Like people had jobs and right. families and things. And so finding the time and the margin to be able to give extra to help when it was not an essential for your own home mm-hmm. was really difficult. And that's not good. Um, it was really neat to see the churches did a lot of that work continued, but it, then it focused pretty much on the churches after that. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, that's just human nature, right? And and if you were to go to any of those families that, that didn't help beyond that first week or two, you would not find villains in there right. laughing at the misfortune of others. Right, right. You would just find people who would say, I would like to, but I, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And it takes a galvanizing figurehead a lot of the time to get people to put the regular stuff on hold and step out and do this. Because then... I mean, there's fewer people doing crops. All of them had professions. All of them, right. these were not wealthy. We see money becomes a problem later on. Right. And it was hard, but he he was able to motivate them to do it. Hmm. And I think also, is as odd as this is, the opposition showing back up also probably helped them to do it. Nothing yeah. will get you to work hard <laughs> more than a threat. Right. <laughs> and and I think Yahweh used the threat of, what's his name, Sanballat mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, Tobiah. And there's one more. Who's the Geshem, right? No. Yeah, I think Gershom, Geshem, Gershom, something like that. Yeah. Um, I think Yahweh used them to galvanize his people to, to action. And we see, I mean, it's, he's such a bully. Sanballat is such a bully. The, the, anyone who has seen a bully at work knows what they love to do is a show of force. And like the rhetorical questions in chapter four, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they really restore their wall? Or what are they going to do? They're going to rebuild it with sacrifices it and finish it in a day. You know, can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? Um, he's a bully. And, and Nehemiah stood up to the bully, but one of the, the, there's a verse that's really, I think talked about a lot that I think is neat. It's in four, nine. And it was Nehemiah saying, we prayed to God and then we posted a guard. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the idea isn't we prayed to God and did nothing because we trust him to fix it. Um, we can trust Yahweh to fix it, but he's put us there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we pray to God and then we do the wise thing. Mm Mm-hmm which is what he wants us to do. And that's a partnership between heaven and earth. You know, he right. he will he will work through us most often. And they refinished it in like six months. So, I mean, that's an astonishingly that's a short time. Yeah, so remarkable it, span for the project. There's so much detail given in Ezra and Nehemiah that we can, I think, trust the timelines that are given. But it is not, it should not have been humanly possible for them to do in that period of time. And so it's not described, this was a working of Yahweh as a miracle, mm-hmm. but it, I think that we are supposed to read it that way. In the ancient yeah. world, they would have read it that way. It'd be like reading that the the Sears Tower was built by lay people in a month. Like <laughs> right. you would you would know that there's or that that ha, uh, Handel's Messiah was written in two days. You know, anyone who knows anything about music knows that should not have been possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, so I, I said this earlier, we kind of see the shift in, I mean, I think it's the same, again, same focus through the whole work, the rebuilding of Judah, but the wall's done in six and then it, it moves on and we get kind of this focus on this big celebration of the festival of booths in mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine. And I just wanted you to speak to just kind of remind us like, what is the festival of booths and its significance and why you know, was this the, like, why is, why do you suppose that this is the festival that's emphasized? I mean, obviously because it's the one that happened, but you know, just, but we know from the Torah that it's actually the third of three that occur in a cluster right. in the fall. And so why, why is Booth's the one emphasized of Rosh Hashanah, which is actually, they're about to start Friday is the start of Rosh Hashanah. I mean, I can um, answer this. Rosh Hashanah, Day of Atonement and Feast of Booth's. Why is Booth's the one that's, that's emphasized? So the Feast of Booths celebrates the time when the Israelites had to um, live in huts during the wilderness wanderings. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the feelings of that is a reminder of the providence of God, even when everything certain has been pulled from you, right? So they were homeless then. And in, when they were in, wandering in the wilderness, they were heading toward a home, but they were homeless. And I think we can feel the, the in the Festival of Booths, they are, they are remembering the promises of the land that were given to them by Yahweh. They are celebrating his watching over them in that, in that time. And I think that, especially for Nehemiah's time and their situation, um, they were in the land, but like it wasn't really their home again yet. And so it's a remembrance of of the promise of Yahweh and a pointing forward to what's going to what he's going to help them do in the future that Jerusalem will be restored i think that's why it in particular was focused on no i think that's great i mean I, the festival of booths is is uh like described in very joyful terms mm-hmm. throughout the torah and so i think it's just it's a it's a you know again it's the third of these of this cluster of three festivals and so i think that it's just kind of the 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 big bang at the end yeah. you know of everybody sends gifts to each other and builds little you know huts out of branches and i think it corresponds basically to what would have been the end of their harvest you know bringing so the crops have been in gathered so it's like everyone has done all this work and now we can we can relax and have this yeah. week long party and i think that again for the exiles especially we know from haggai you know uh, that crops were an issue, you know, that, that they, that so much had been lost and destroyed that, I mean, they really were just kind of just rebuilding from the bottom up. And so I think as well, yeah, just this idea of like, we're, we're back, we're here, you know, we've rebuilt the wall, the harvest is in, like we're, you know, kind of reaping, literally reaping the blessings of the Lord so we can celebrate that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on, so in Nehemiah 13, these final reforms of Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. And so he's left and come back, right? And um, one of the, the, the things that he does here is he talks about how no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they'd not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam, and we're recalling the book of Numbers here, to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is based on Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5. Yeah. Um, but I, I would just love if you would speak to this. I mean, did they actually do that? And if so, how is that not awful? 
I mean, we there's really no way to know what it actually looked like at this point, but I think it, you know, that they're presenting it as having happened, and I think it's sad. I think it's a sad thing. Well, yeah. You know, and again, it, it's really a, and again, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book, and so it's like, all right, so it happened as the midpoint at what we call the end of Ezra, and now it's happening again here at the end of Nehemiah. And, you know, I think that we are... We are being, as Christian readers, again, I think we're being set up to see that there is something like deeply wrong hmm. in the middle of this covenant. Um, not that the covenant itself, and Paul's very clear about this later on, but that something keeps turning the people away. Like they're, the point of Abraham's family is to be a blessing for the nations. Mm-hmm. And so when they're not being a blessing to the nation, something has gone deeply, deeply wrong. You know, that they, and we see this again, I mean, we're, we'll be, get into the New Testament next week, that, that Judah's leadership was not ready for a Messiah proclaiming good news that also included the Gentiles. Many of the run-of-the-mill Judeans were not ready for this, you know, and we, we see this reflected in Peter's life. Decades after all of it, still having issues with with whether the Gentiles were really welcomed or not. So I, I mean, to me, again, I get, I want to know more. So I mean, I want to cover all of this with just the humility of my depth knowledge here is very shallow. But like, it reads to me as a failure in the other direction. <clears throat> that rather than just rampant idolatry and corruption, it's now turning into. I mean, we would the modern word would be xenophobia, right? Fear of all outsiders, but. You know, I think that, yeah, I just think that it's, that is, I mean, that it's a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I guess what I would say. Well, in, in particular, there's, what's, what's surprising about this is, I mean, Ezra is, and is certainly uh, a person who knows the, the word. Mm-hmm. And I guess a fair question is, I mean, did they have access to the book of Ruth? Because Ruth is a Moabite. We don't know. And that is a, a pretty clear description of an exception. So Ruth, in theory, should have been refused because she was a Moabite, right? Deuteronomy came before Ruth. Right. But what, what changes and what we see in the Old Testament laws a lot of the time is a hard stance is taken that they are allowed to keep, you know, but it's, it's often not enforced, mm-hmm. right? The parents are not putting their children to death for, for speaking back to them. Um, right. That's right. And so, so the thought here is, in my opinion, um, what should have happened and what, what the plan should have been would be to say that all righteous or, you know, all Moabites that are joining the covenant, mm-hmm. um, can stay, but it actually reads, it does not say they were foreign because we're foreign is how it's talked about in, in Ezra, which is the idea that they're still worshiping these other gods. This is all those who were of foreign descent. Mm-hmm. So this is not making exceptions for the the Ruths or the people who had accepted um, Yahweh and were worshiping him primarily. And that's um, shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about the book of Joel? Well, it's a warning, a call to repentance and a warning of a great plague of locusts, whether... Joel was warning of an actual infestation of locusts or if they're a symbol for an invading army. We're not sure. Might be both. Uh, I don't know if it necessarily really matters (laughs) if it's locusts or not, but uh, that's the symbol that's presented. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, a fairly, I think, well, not simple, but straightforward, I think, book of prophecy of calling the people to repent before the day of the Lord comes um, and making promises and about what that will look like. Yeah. It, Joel's interesting because we don't actually know for sure when mm-hmm. Joel prophesied. So our reading plan assumes he's at the end. Right. And that it is d- dated him late. one yeah. thing that a lot of people do. He's almost certainly post-exile because he's he refers to an exile in chapter 3, like it's already happened. Mm-hmm. And he refers to the Greeks by name, which is, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's that's later. That's true. But um, I think he's probably around the same time as Malachi. I, I think that being sure of his lateness is, is a mistake. But speaking of the day of the Lord, I'd love for you to speak to this because in chapter one, he suggests that the day of the Lord, day of the Lord has already come. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter two, he's talking about a future day of the Lord. What is, what does the day of the Lord mean? If it, if it's not just something in the future, it's something that's already happened. Like what, what is it? Uh, yeah, I, I think we talked about this a while ago, but I mean, it's, Maybe the, the simplest way, and these aren't the terms that the Bible uses, but that basically the day of the Lord is the day that, that Yahweh acts decisively, uh, not necessarily to rescue his people, although it can be that. I mean, that's part of what Joel's warning is the day of the Lord will come. Uh, I mean, really, I think, I guess we could really just say it's judgment day, but that doesn't just happen once at the end of time. The judgment day can also happen in a limited sense, you know, in certain situations and, and for certain people. Um, and so that can go well or go badly, depending on how you're sitting with your covenant obligations, I guess is really the way to put it. Yeah. So it can be both something that's happened in the past and also something that is yet to come. Malachi, Malachi is an interesting, it's just, it's, a, it, it's, it's an interesting book because it's, it is framed differently than the other prophetic books it's almost presented as like a uh, like a court dynamic you know that you know i don't know if we would say some you know that i guess that he's questioning yahweh or that yahweh is presenting a case against the people and malachi is like his defense attorney or you know like there's just kind of this back and forth that that is interesting that we really haven't seen I think in really any of the other prof- prophetic books, this 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 sort of we get dynamic. bits of it, like in Isaiah, we see some of it and, and things like that. Yeah, but this is true. condensed; it's the primary. Yeah, it almost kind of reminds me a little bit of Job. Yes, it just does. in terms of like the back and forth and Habakkuk. I guess Habakkuk mm-hmm. is is a similar sort of idea of Habakkuk kind of questioning, putting the question to the Lord, and then the Lord responding. Um. So yeah, it's it, it's interesting, and it also has a pretty wide set of of issues kind of in its purview yeah it does you know i mean they're all connected i think to covenant faithfulness covenant faithfulness and things that that the the post-exile community was facing you know issues with the worship in the temple issues with the levites issues with marriage again that were you know so i mean that was something was happening around marriage and and marriage laws and everything in the post post post-exile judea um, and then it ends with the promises of, of the messenger that will that will be coming. So it starts with kind of accusing God or questioning whether or not God's what what does it mean that God has loved Jacob? Um, yeah. And the comparison is then drawn, and it's famous. Paul quotes it later in the New Testament uh, in verse one or verse two. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So what does it mean that Yahweh hated Esau? 
Because when you read Genesis, it doesn't really strike as hatred. <laughs> no. And so this, this can, this, this word can mean hate, but it really can mean removed from position. So, so in the same way, Reuben was hated, right? And so what that means is Reuben lost his position as the eldest, mm-hmm. right? His firstborn. So yeah. He's still in the, he's still in the family. He's not hated, but he's, he's what we mean by hate, mm-hmm. but there's an honor that is lost. Esau was the eldest and should have had that that honor, and Yahweh chose the younger over him, and he mm. so he took status from Esau. And that word in Hebrew, I mean, it, it shocks us, and I think it's okay for it to shock us, but that's that's what it means. It's it's I've I've loved Jacob, and I reduced Esau. I um, demoted demoted Esau. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does uh, what Malachi says in the second half of chapter 2 square with Ezra? Not saying it's opposed, but just does it shed any light? Well, I think it's got to, we have to, if we can, if we can import the assumption that an Israelite marriage requires a marriage to someone else who is a Yahweh worshiper, mm-hmm. then I feel like there's no tension there as far as God, but... But the, you know, you're talking about God hates divorce is the, right, 216. Well, or just even it's it's just an odd, because at the beginning he says, uh, you know, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. But then it goes on to say that he's rejecting these offerings because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. To whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then it and then in sixteen, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. So it's almost it it appears to be almost like flip flopping back and forth, like so is it bad or is it good? <laughs> so I think I think the idea that we would have in Ezra is that the marriages weren't real marriages, right? Mm. From this perspective. Mm. They're they're not actual covenants that are overseen by God and mm. honoring him. Because they can't be, because mm-hmm. the people now if again repentance happens, I think that, that would be included. Um but what we're finding here oh go ahead. Oh uh, go on. What what's what's so interesting about well, I'm going to take us sideways. Do you have do you have follow up? <laughs> oh, just that I don't know. I guess to me it maybe sheds a little bit of light just because of this reference to the wife of your youth. You know, that I just wonder if, again, thinking back to these marriages in Ezra and Nehemiah, that many of them were not uh, the first wives of these men. You know, and that there's something... Again, I feel like there's a big historical detail that is missing from the middle of my understanding, yeah. you know, of like what I was happening. I should have Jewish commentary. You know, why, why was this happening? Um, because it just seems like Malachi is saying, yes, it's wrong, you know, and either that they were divorcing their original wives in favor of marrying foreign wives or I, I don't know. I mean, that there's yeah. something it's puzzling. So Moses <laughs> in Deuteronomy 24 had given statute for divorce right Mm -hmm. and um and we find out later that you know jesus jesus says that that was done because of their their flaws right Um, it wasn't a a good thing and we hear from malachi that it's actually bad but one of the things that's so interesting to me about about verse 16 
So one of the things you hear when you hear people object to the Christian, you know, faith in faith in, in the Bible is the wrong phrase. I don't want to say that, but but belief that the Bible is God's word is people talk about contradictions or, you know, things that are lost. Malachi 2.16, the Hebrew hardly makes sense and it doesn't fit with the rest of the, the book of Malachi. And that's not because it's been inserted. What has almost certainly happened is scri- a scribe somewhere did not like it and changed it, which is crazy. And so they've they the the effort was something about uh, or the the Hebrew itself reads so badly that commentators, Bible translators, universally take what's there and try to reconstruct what Malachi's thoughts would be. That's why different translations vary wildly here. Mm-hmm. Um, God hates divorce is not what my mind says. Right. Um, mine, mine doesn't either. And and so it's a, I think that's a faithful and a true s- sentiment, right? But the 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 Hebrew is so hard here, but it's it's the the crescendo of Malachi's argument and we want to get it right. We don't want a scribe who knew the, who knew Deuteronomy or really wanted to be able to divorce his wife to be able to mess up, you know, what, what Malachi was trying to say here. And so we think that we can reconstruct because all the differences that you'll find in the different versions, they are different, but they all are saying essentially the same thing that, that Yahweh feels strongly against violence and against divorce. He does not like either of those things. And I think that that is, that is okay. But that's one of the things that fascinates me is the, you, it's a reconstruction. There are not many of those in scripture and never is it about a core tenant, but it's, it's places like here where we have to try to figure out what Malachi was trying to tell us. Well, and again, I think that just, it's, it's striking because, you know, some, what something was happening with them at in this day and age that that caused this to be such a yeah. a fractious you know thing, so I want to look I want to look more into that. Yeah, I uh, bet I bet the Jewish commentaries would have a lot to say about it. Hmm. What other reflections on the Old Testament do you have, Pastor Ben? I mean, I think it's been good. You know, we uh, there's sort of this this dance or this balance that we have to do in reading the Bible, and we have to do it with all of it, but I think the Old Testament kind of brings it out more as a more urgent need of, of on the one hand, trying to understand as best as we can what the original context was, the issues, you know, the setting, why they're saying the things that they're saying, but then, okay, and then making the turn, saying, all right, so what does this have to do with me, and there's a good, I guess there's a good way and a bad way to make that turn, right? Because we should assume it has something to do with me because we believe that it's a word of God. So it's addressed to God's entire people, past, present, and future. You know, so even the things that are, and it's all addressed to people who are long dead, you know, <laughs> directly. So, I mean, we have to believe that, you know, it's, uh, otherwise it's it's just his historic, just historical information, right? but to be God's living word. I mean, so we have to make that assumption. And I think that's a proper, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of the way to do that well. Is to say, all right, so we believe that this is God's word, that it's fulfilled in Jesus. So then in a light of those things, what does this have to do with us? And But I think that the bad way to kind of go about that is to say, really, we. I guess 
The first way is we start from scripture and then work our way to ourselves, whereas I think the selfish way is to start with ourselves and then work our way to scripture. And I think this is part of why people struggle to read so much of the Bible is, well, I already know it doesn't have anything to do with me, so why read it? I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know where any of these places are. I don't know what any of this means. And I think throughout, we've tried to push back against that attitude because I think it is a selfish attitude. It's understandable, you know, especially in American culture. Like, we're very fast, to the point, give it to me straight. If it doesn't have something, if I can't get anything out of it very quickly, then I'm moving on. You know, we don't like to necessarily sit with things, right? The punchline should come, you know, 10 to 15 seconds after you start the joke. <laughs> And that's just not what the Old Testament is like. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and so I think that, you know, and, and I've used this metaphor many times, maybe on the podcast, but just certainly in other contexts. And it's not mine. It came from a, a book I read. But just this idea of the Old Testament being our friend in faith, you know, that it's an old friend, meaning, like, think of an old person, you know, and so some of their ideas might be a little dated, you know, some of their whatever is kind of weird, they'd say nothing quickly, and they kind of have to tell a bunch of stories to illustrate a point rather than just telling, answering a question that you have. But it's like we, this is a person that we can, you know, quote unquote, a person that we can trust, that we know has a lot of wisdom, and that we know, you know, cares about us deeply and has our best interest at heart. So it's, we need to just sit here and let it be what it's going to be, right? Usually, at least hopefully most of us aren't going to like hurry along an older person to get to their point, you know, if we're visiting with them or, or whatever else. Um, and so I hope, you know, and I, and I know that there's many people who have stuck with the reading plan all year and, and God bless them. For many of them, or some of them, it's the first time they've really read the whole Testament or read it like this, you know, just kind of straight, more or less straight through you know, and I hope that that's been evident to them as well, like that it's it's been worth it to take the journey, you know, to, to get through it and to read the whole thing, whether they retain it all or whether, you know, I mean, that's that's all kind of a different a different thing. But, um, you know, I think the Lord rewards that and he promises us that in Isaiah that his word doesn't return void. Um, and so even when it is just an anti-genealogy of a bunch of dudes who married women they weren't supposed to, you know, it's like that we're trusting, we're kind of laying ourselves on the altar of these hard to understand things saying, all right, I'm here, I'm trying to listen, you know, and I, I hope that for all of us, we, uh, you know, we, we see the, the reward of that and the benefit of that. Yeah. Thank you. What I sense most here. As I come to the end of the Old Testament, reading it this way, and this is, I haven't read the Bible chronologically in a long time. Um, I, I have read from beginning to end um, many times. And one of the things that I always feel as I get to the end of the Old Testament is I'm exhausted. And Malachi sits at the end, and I think I think for many reasons, but it is in a lot of ways a summary of, of God loves you, and you don't think he does. Well, here's proof that he does, but you're not faithful, you know, in the... And this story, after the return from exile, we want we want it to just be good. But then we get Joel and Malachi saying, no, there was there were different problems. We're not reading about idolatry anymore, but we're reading about unfaithfulness. And um, it's exhausting to be to go through that and and read. Can this people just not figure it out? How long are they going to just be scrambling around in the dark? messing things up you know and the there's all this excitement and and power and it's like an explosion of 
of God's working and and hope at the beginning of Scripture. You know those stories mm-hmm. that we all we all go to that we know so well, and one of the reasons we know them is because they're exciting, right? And they're they're full of promise and future. And we're here then, and it's just unrealized over and over. And there's moments; those moments are in the past, and those moments are um, never never took. And so we're sitting with a people who have finally come to recognize, I think, that they're just bad at this. And now they're going in another wrong direction. And that's what Pastor Ben mentioned, is they're, they're trying something new, but they're, it's also bad. <laughs> um, and, and I find myself just, there's, there's a, a, I don't know, like I'm done, you know, when I get to the Old Testament. If it was one book longer, it would be much harder to read. Um, and one of the things that does is it, it makes us ready, I think, for an explosion of activity that's, that's about to come. And, and this one is, I mean, our hearts are, are made ready to receive, I think, the, the joyful promises that are being fulfilled and newly given in, in the New Testament. And so nothing can prepare you to understand and connect to the New Testament like reading the Old and if this is your first time reading through the Old Testament before diving into the New, I think you're going to find it's all a lot sweeter. Um, you're, we've been made hungry by a long trek through the desert. And, and it's been a long time since we've been at water. And we're about to come to an oasis. And it's, uh, it's not just an oasis. It's, it's the promised land. And that's a, a wonderful change. Yeah, and so, I mean, Malachi is the last of the prophets, or Joel, but one of them. And so the prophetic ministry in Judah falls silent for hundreds of years, and uh, the Persians eventually lose their empire to Alexander the Great, who sweeps across from northern Greece and conquers the entire world. Not really, but as far as they understood. He died under mysterious circumstances, and then his four primary generals split up the empire. And Judah was sort of caught right at the border between two of them, and uh, so they kind of switched back and forth between the one centered in Egypt um, that would eventually produce Cleopatra and other famous figures, and then the one that was centered more north in Antioch, which would be very important for the church later on. And one of these kings, and we referenced him, I think, last week or maybe the week before, Antiochus IV, who called himself Epiphanes, or the incarnation of God, or the appearing of God, was particularly hard on the Judean people and systematically went about trying to eliminate their religion and kind of Greekify their society. And this was resisted by what, what are known as the Maccabees, uh, which means the hammers, you know, so these freedom fighters. And eventually, the, uh, the Judean leadership and the Egyptian, the southern kingdom leadership, appealed to a new, sort of a new power rising in the Mediterranean world for help against the northern kingdom, and this would be the Senate of Rome. And so that's when the Roman emperor, or the Roman general Ptolemy, or not Ptolemy, uh, Claude, no, what's his name? The third guy in the triumvirate. Pompey, Pompey, another, it was another P, another P okay. word. General Pompey lands kicks the Antiochus' kingdom forces out of Judah 
enters Jerusalem, actually enters the temple and goes and looks in the Holy of Holies because he's heard it's supposed to be really special. His face doesn't get melted off. So, you know, we know that Yahweh has left the, left the, the premises. And then at that point, Rome never leaves. Uh, there's different levels of, of control and authority, but when Pompey landed to quote unquote help them, then Rome decided that they'd stay and keep helping them. <laughs> Rome never, Rome never let go of something. Again. And that, is the setup for the world that Jesus was born into around 400 years after Malachi and Joel's ministries. Yeah. I mean, it's important to know the Maccabees resisted the Greeks, but then there were also revolt after revolt against the Romans. Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the reasons why we see so much danger associated with um, the the Messiah movement and so much interest on the part of the Jews is they... Their reading of the book of Daniel told them that they were living in the time when when the Messiah should come. But previous attempts at um, revolt had, whether they were Jewish or not, had really startled the Romans. Um, several had done just much more damage than they should have been able to do. And so the Romans are just kind of set to resist that, while at the same time making claims about um, their emperors that go directly in the face of um, any kind of monotheistic worship. And so it really is like a perfect storm of um, preparation and readiness for a Messiah to come and cause all kinds of drama. And a Messiah is going to come and he's going to cause all kinds of drama. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Oh, did you stop it? It looked like you stopped it. That's why I stopped. No, I turned it down because oh. you, your stupid voice blasted into my ears. <laughs> my stupid voice. You literally told me to put this close to my mouth. <laughs>